0: Hey guys, Justin Robert Young here. This is the finale, but first I want to remind you guys of a few things. Number one, if you've enjoyed this series, then you might enjoy my current politics show. This is twice a week about the things that actually happen in politics that didn't exist 60 years ago. It's called politics, politics, politics. And if you've dug this show, I think you're going to dig that one. I'd appreciate you giving it a shot. Also, if you want our ebook of complete transcripts, head on over to RaiseTheDeadPodcast.com. It's also free on Kindle Unlimited if you have that. As for the audiobook, oh my God, as soon as it's approved, I'll do another episode. And finally, next week, we're going to do our mailbag episode. We've gotten some great emails so far, but if you want to be part of it, Send an email to the young at gmail.com and use raise the dead mailbag in the subject line. All right. This is it. Season finale. Let's begin. When you've put everything into something, a process defined by never giving up, how do you know when to quit? Because when the pressure is highest, the only thing you know is that you can't. Hillary Clinton rents the Javits Center for her celebration on election night 2016, and she does it because it's capped by a big glass ceiling, her metaphorical nemesis. One she'd battled since eight years earlier in 2008, when she lost in humiliating fashion to Barack Obama in the Democratic primary. Although we weren't able to shatter that highest, hardest glass ceiling this time, thanks to you, it's got about 18 million cracks in it. She went through hell between now and then. Eight years of playing her part. Eight years of biding her time. Eight years of putting the plan together. No one knows the humiliation of coming so close and then losing only to then find resolve. Resolve to stay in the spotlight. Resolve to right the wrong. No one knows what that's like. Well, not exactly no one. Her and one other. Tonight, election night. 2016 is the night that that glass ceiling shatters. Tonight's the night she becomes president. Tonight is the night she completes the biggest political comeback since Richard Nixon. Time ticks by election night, 1960. An NBC computer just called the race for Kennedy. That can't be right, right? Pressure builds in real time to quit, the kind that rushes behind your eyes, the universe collapsing into the forward position of your skull. Nixon doesn't know what lays ahead of him, the humiliation of coming so close, or the humiliations to follow. As I leave you, uh, I want you to know, (laughs) just think how much you're gonna be missing. You don't have Nixon to kick around anymore. Because, gentlemen, this is my last press conference. Even then, when he's giving up, he still can't give up. He can't, at this moment in 1960, comprehend the resolve it's going to take to come back from another loss in two years, or the gall to run for president again eight years after this night. All he knows now is that he can't give up. NBC overrules its computer and again declares the race too close to call. Yet for both Clinton and Nixon, the dominoes fall one by one. States awarding electoral votes that make their path to victory challenging. Less probable. All of the work slips away. Eight years after his defeat tonight, Nixon will taste victory. But in 2016, Clinton is already eight years after her defeat. She's going to follow in Dick's footsteps. She's going to break through. Right? As the map turns against both, they both make the same decision 56 years apart. They can't look their supporters in the eye and give up tonight. News dies and becomes history. But tonight, oh yeah, we raise the dead. It was invisible, as always. On election day, America is Republican until five or six in the evening. It is in those last few hours of the day that working people and their families vote, on the way home from work or after supper. It is then, at evening, that America goes Democratic if it goes Democratic at all. All of this is invisible, for it is the essence of the act. That as it happens, it is a mystery in which millions of people fit one fragment of a total secret together, none of them knowing the shape of the whole. What results from the fitting together of these secrets is, of course, the most awesome transfer of power in the world. The power to marshal and mobilize, the power to send men to kill or be killed, the power to tax and destroy, the power to create and the responsibility to do so. The power to guide and the responsibility to heal. All committed into the hands of one man. Heroes and philosophers, brave men and vile, have since Rome and Athens tried to make this particular manner of transfer of power work effectively. No people has succeeded at it better or over a longer period of time than the Americans. Yet as the transfer of this power takes place, there is nothing to be seen except an occasional line outside a church or school or file of people fidgeting in the rain, waiting to enter the booths. No bands play on election day, no troops march, no guns are readied, no conspirators gather in secret headquarters. The noise and the blare, the bands and the screaming, the pageantry and the oratory of the long fall campaign fade on Election Day. All the planning is over, all the efforts spent. Now the candidates must wait. But no candidate and no party can afford the investment on Election Day to match the news gathering resources of the mass media. And so, as every citizen sits in their home watching his TV set or listening to his radio, he is the equal of any other in knowledge. There is nothing that can be done in those hours, for no one can any longer direct the great strike for America's power. The polls have closed. Good or bad, whatever the decision, America will accept it and cut down any man who goes against it even though for millions the decision runs contrary to their own votes the general vote is an expression of national will the only substitute for violence and blood its verdict is to be defended as one defends civilization itself there is nothing like this American expression of will in England or France India or Russia or China, only one other major nation in modern history has ever tried to elect its leader directly by mass free popular vote. This was the Weimar Republic of Germany which modeled its unitary vote for a national leader on the American practice. Out of its experiment with the system, it got Hitler. Americans have had Lincoln, Wilson, two Roosevelts. Nothing can be done when the voting returns are flooding in. The White House and its power will move to one or another of the two candidates, and we will all know about it in the morning. But for these hours, history stops. Those are the words of Theodore White from his book, The Making of the President. I wanted... To begin this, our final episode, with a tribute to him and everybody else whose history of 1960 I've used for this series. But his prose is awesome and also important. It's a contemporary understanding of what's at stake. And it's going to give you a good idea of how everybody reacts afterward. So. How did our candidates in 1960 spend the afternoon history stops? Nixon returned to Los Angeles. He spends the afternoon driving around, and unlike his disastrous meltdown in Iowa, by all reporting, all the car seats make it out alive. The entire Kennedy family retreat to their compound in Hyannisport. The cul-de-sac where they own multiple homes is blockaded from the press and fans. The Kennedy boys oblige those waiting by throwing the football around in the front yard. And then the votes come in. Nixon opens strong, surging to what would be his only popular vote lead of the night as polls close at 6 p.m. But by 7, Kennedy outpaces him with a strong win in Connecticut indicating that he'd likely do well in states with similar demographics like New Jersey, New York, and Pennsylvania. By 10.30 p.m., the Kennedy lead reaches 1.5 million in popular vote, and it peaks at 2 million as midnight strikes on the East Coast. It's at this point that NBC News utilizes its cutting-edge RCA 501, Ah, this bad boy stores a gobsmacking 1.5 million characters. The machine confirms an earlier projection that Kennedy will indeed win this election with a three point popular vote margin. The computer would not be totally accurate. Although Kennedy wins, the final result proves to be far closer than what it had projected. So, brief pause in this 1960 narrative to focus on how technology and political coverage has continued to shape our understanding of politics and how it fares on election night. 2012 heralded the true coming out party of political poll analyst Nate Silver, then of the New York Times. His state-by-state prediction, using a very sophisticated model of polling data, goes 50%. 50. Every single one of them dead on. In 2016, silver success means a wave of polling models dominate coverage, each of them attempting to recreate the bold success of silver by demonstrating percentage chances Clinton and Trump have to win. Among the boldest models projecting a Clinton win is done by Nate Cohn, Silver's replacement at the New York Times after Silver took his site to ESPN. On October 23rd, days away from election night, Cohn's model gives Hillary Clinton a 93% chance to win the election, leaving Trump a remote 7% chance of victory. In the Trump war room on election night, Kellyanne Conway one of the folks running the Trump campaign, grins as she shows candidate Trump the rapidly reversing Cohn projection. It is only at 9.30 p.m. that according to the sophisticated Cohn model, Donald Trump has a statistical advantage to win the presidency. Cohn gives him 51%. It would rapidly climb closer to 100 as the minutes ticked by. My point here is not to slam technology. It is just one other way that we're trying to understand something that, as Theodore White very eloquently points out, is a secret until it is revealed to us all at the exact same time. But whether it's the RCA 501 with its 1.5 million characters of storage or the thousands of lines of code from the Nates of the world, it does help to take them with a grain of salt. Back to the race. Kennedy's two million vote peak is fleeting as the total stats start dropping fast as voters in southern and western states come in. Nixon carries Ohio, which to this day is an almost automatic indicator of who's going to win the presidency. And yet, Nixon loses Texas, which Eisenhower had won in his previous two elections. This instigates a call from Lyndon Johnson in the Driscoll Hotel in Austin, Texas, to Bobby Kennedy, where he tells the campaign Kennedy manager, I hear you're losing Ohio, but we're doing fine in Pennsylvania. End quote. By 2 a.m. Eastern Time, Kennedy leads by less than a million votes nationwide, and the race comes down to two states, Illinois and Minnesota. Kennedy needs one of the two. Nixon needs both. By 3.20 a.m. Eastern Time, Nixon decides it's time to punt until the next day. The returns don't look good in Illinois, yet there are still votes to be counted. And to be honest, it's a very, very, very close race. Nixon greets his supporters in the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles and hedges. He tells them that if the current trends continue, Kennedy is the new president. It's not a formal concession which infuriates the Kennedy team. Except for Jack. His reported reaction is, quote, why should he concede? I wouldn't. And so, Jack also goes to sleep. And when he awakes, at 9 a.m. the next day, he hears the news. He's won. That afternoon, he receives a phone call from Nixon conceding the race. John F. Kennedy is now the president-elect. To uh, all citizens of this country, Democrats, Independents, Republicans, regardless of how they may have voted, that it is a satisfying moment to me. And I want to express my appreciation to all of them and to uh, Mr. Nixon uh, personally. In 2016, we have a different story with a similar result. While the Kennedys are stressed and buzzing, the chaos is as contained as a rowdy dinner party. The only strains leaving the House come in the form of war stories from the victors in the days, months, and years afterward. While Trump is similar to the Kennedys in that they are both on their own personal property, for Trump, it's Trump Tower in Manhattan, The hardcore loyalist atmosphere is nowhere near replicated. But remember, Donald Trump, unlike JFK, has a band of mercenaries running his campaign. There is tremendous turnover, even by stressful campaign standards. The people that are there with him, a political neophyte, have only really been with him for months. I'd imagine for some, the last day of summer camp feeling was particularly acute, and some of the pent-up frustrations were starting to boil over. As the polls close, CNN's Jim Acosta airs this report from within the Trump campaign. It will take a miracle for us to win. That is the quote from a senior advisor inside Donald Trump's uh, inner circle. This reportedly inspires Steve Bannon to search the printed version of that report, looking to see what pronouns they use for the source. It is his belief that if he can find a they instead of a he, then the source has to be the other half of the campaign leadership, Kellyanne Conway, the first female to run a successful campaign for president. But that's where we're at right now. The Trump campaign is very, very, very tight, and early exit polls circulated between the campaigns and the media show a cakewalk for Clinton. As we soon find out, those exit polls are wrong. The tenor of the gathering in Trump Tower goes from fractured Some media contacts told GQ that Trump campaign staff are handing out their cards to solicit future work before the actual voting results rolled in, to eventually jubilant. Not so, of course, for the Clinton team. As the old saying goes, success has a million fathers and failure is an orphan. So as the night rolls on, fingers start pointing. Pointing. Why did the campaign head, Robbie Mook, fail to recognize how dire of a situation Michigan was? How big of an effect did James Comey reopening the email case affect this? And if we're going to go down that rabbit hole, shouldn't Huma Abedin, who's married to Anthony Weiner, the man whose confiscated laptop triggered the reopening, bear some of the blame? And if we're going to go down that rabbit hole, why didn't the candidate herself handle that situation better? With the map looking worse by the minute, John Podesta sends the Javits Center crowd home at 2 a.m. Several states are too close to call, so we're not going to have anything more to say tonight. So listen. Unlike Nixon, Hillary didn't have a night between her concession. The Associated Press calls the race at 2:30 a.m. Eastern time after Trump wins Wisconsin, and the AP call is the agreed-upon inflection point between the campaigns. After the AP renders their call, it's up to Kellyanne Conway and Huma Abedin to coordinate the concession call. For the second time in eight years, Hillary comes up short. This time in even more agonizing fashion than even Nixon could comprehend. Even worse, Clinton wins the popular vote, earning 48%, nearly matching both Kennedy and Nixon's total of 49%. And yet, she's beaten soundly in the deciding factor of the Electoral College. Clinton only earns 227 to Trump's 304. Compare that to 1960 with Nixon earning 219 to Kennedy's 303. For America to bind the wounds of division, have to get together. To all Republicans and Democrats and independents across this nation, I say it is time for us to come together as one united people. It's time. I pledge to every citizen of our land that I will be president for all Americans, and this is so important to me. For Clinton and Nixon, and their supporters, it didn't take long to suspect foul play. Of course, in 2016, the villain is Russia. What follows is a special prosecutor and Robert Mueller, multiple arrests, and a lingering public stance from Clinton that she would have won if there had not been outside forces hacking her campaign and parties' emails and manipulating the country through digital gaslighting. In 1960... Republicans are furious, among them the outgoing president of the United States. Dwight Eisenhower calls his vice president and encourages him to challenge the results. But why? The allegations here are wide ranging, but we're going to focus on two states, Illinois and Texas. Both of them were wins by Kennedy. But if Nixon had won both of them, he's the president. We're going to start with Illinois and specifically Cook County, which counts Chicago as its biggest city. It's there that popular legend says the Kennedys had two very powerful allies, one on the right side of the law and the other the opposite, namely Chicago Mayor Richard Daley and mob boss Momo Giancana. Republicans are wary of the Cook County count, which Kennedy wins by an eye-popping 450,000 votes. That's the margin of victory. And by the way, Kennedy only won Illinois by 9,000 votes. And let's be clear here. Whether or not you believe in this conspiracy, understand that Chicago has a rich history of election fraud, both before this time and during this period of history. Historically, here's how you rig an election in Chicago. One way is legacy. Specifically, dead Chicagoans miraculously making it to the polls and voting Democratic. This gift is achieved when deceased voters are kept on voter rolls and crooked Democrat precinct captains make sure that they vote the right way. Some reports even have volunteers taking names off tombstones so they could fill out new voter registration cards. To put it in the words of the fictional Momo Giancana in the HBO movie The Rat Pack, just tell your pal we turned out to live and raise the dead in Chicago like it was a Catholic resurrection. Raise the dead. That's the name of this show. By all accounts, the real Momo is just as positive that he swung the election. Among those that allegedly facilitated it is a young woman by the name of Judith Exner. She meets JFK February 1960 through Frank Sinatra and begins a a two-and-a-half-year affair with the candidate, then-president. Frank also introduces her to Momo Giancana. Exner claims in multiple outlets, including her own biography, that she became a trusted messenger between JFK and Momo. In April 1960, a week before the West Virginia primary, Exner says she delivers a bag of money to Giancana. For the general election, Sam Giancana, the rise and fall of a mobster, reports that the Chicago crime boss marshaled all of his forces to ensure that the Windy City, specifically its unions, voted the right way. The same book offers this quote from Giancana to Exner. Quote, Listen, honey, if it wasn't for me, your boyfriend wouldn't be in the White House. End quote. It's important to mention that Chicago's voter fraud reputation does come with an internal justification. They believe, with some evidence, that they are only stealing enough votes to even up what Republicans steal in the areas that they control in downstate Illinois. The noise around Chicago's vote count gets so loud after the election that it is indeed investigated. And that investigation indeed turns up votes that should have been Nixon. But by less than a thousand votes. Not nearly enough to overturn the nine thousand vote lead that Kennedy had, meaning that effectively this push would never be resolved satisfactory to the Republicans. Will we ever know? Like, for sure, with hard evidence, not just gangster quotes. That the Chicago vote effectively tipped the scales for Kennedy in 1960? No. Chicago, to put it mildly, is excellent at what they do when it comes to electing exactly who the people in power want to elect. As the saying goes... A vote stolen in Cook County stays stolen, which brings us to a state that is discussed far less in this controversy, Texas. Remember, this is the home state of Lyndon Baines Johnson, the vice president-elect, someone who knows everyone in power in the famously provincial and largely Democratic-held Lone Star State. Someone who spends most of the fall campaign in the South cajoling Southern power brokers. Someone that put his wife in a position to get spit on in Dallas so the horrid spectacle could raise a mirror to Texas voters and leadership Who might dare stray from the Democratic ticket? And here it is that there is more than documented evidence of foul play. Here's how W.J. Rohrbaugh puts it in his book, The Real Making of the President. In many places, there were more votes cast than registered voters in the jurisdiction. In Fannin County, 4,895 voters wound up casting 6,138 ballots. In Navarro County, Dawson Precinct, 479 registered voters cast 315 votes for Kennedy and 219 for Nixon. And in some heavily Democratic jurisdictions, votes for president and vice president were added together, giving each candidate double the vote total. By comparing poll books to vote count, it is clear that a 100 Thousand votes had been counted that simply didn't exist. A reminder that Kennedy won Texas by just north of 46,000 votes. But here's the real kicker. Despite there being very obvious irregularities, in 1960 there is no law in place. To challenge a presidential election. And that's it. It just stops there. Can you imagine such a thing? Think about the recount controversy in Florida after the 2000 election when history stopped for far longer than one night. You want a more recent example? How about this one? Bombshell development in North Carolina tonight. There will be a new election. State officials ordering that election in a congressional race amid sweeping allegations of tampered ballots. The Republican, who appeared to win by less than 1%, was brought to tears after what his own son said. And then today, that candidate suddenly calling for a new election himself. Here's a this happened period. after the 2018 midterm elections after voter fraud was proven, and it's just for a House of Representatives seat, a seat that's going to get voted on in less than two years after this story airs. Can you imagine if we had a situation like this, like what happened in Texas in 1960, in this upcoming election in 2020? The idea that a challenge with credible evidence could be stopped just because there's no law to rely upon? Do you know what kind of controversy that would cause? The kind of fury that would be unleashed? But not here. Life just moved on. Nixon, to his credit, never publicly backed a recount challenge, although privately there's plenty of evidence to suggest that he would have liked for there to be even more controversy. But... He feared being labeled a sore loser. He feared the country being torn apart. And he feared the example of a country at odds with each other would set a very bad example for fledgling democracies around the world, specifically as the specter of communism continued to fight for hearts and minds. That didn't stop the Republicans in Congress, however. They investigated any and all irregularities and when their efforts completed, they'd succeeded in overturning a Nixon win in Hawaii. Meaning that three less electoral votes went to their champion. Eventually, even for the things we give everything to, the ones that are defined by the people who don't give up, You just have to move on. when the weather breaks in Miami. The oppressive humidity of the summer mercifully submits to the cool Atlantic breeze. It's no coincidence that it's a popular vacation destination both then in 1960 and now. But it's at the Key Biscayne Hotel in November 14th, 1960 at 11.30am that a remarkable meeting occurs. President-elect John F. Kennedy makes his way from his winter vacation base in Palm Beach to meet the man that he'd beaten only days before, Richard Nixon. Kennedy described the meeting as very cordial and both men vowed to move forward for the good of the country. This is something that I kind of wish became tradition. The idea that Beyond all the ego, beyond all the bluster, both people who run for president should have a personal face-to-face. Even if they're going to get angry and call each other names right after, for the rest of their lives, they can be really angry. And believe you me, Nixon is furious with JFK for a large portion of his existence. Or at least blames JFK and the alleged stealing of the election for so many of his woes. But for that one moment there was a finality to things. Two men being photographed by the Associated Press the ultimate button on the 1960 election. I came to the end of my research and writing of this project. There was one question that stuck out. If these two races are so familiar, if these two races have all of these similarities, then why do they feel so different? In my opinion, it's the media. Even the facts that John F. Kennedy was far more popular than Donald Trump during their races bear some hallmarks of this clear idea. John F. Kennedy was a friend to the media and they loved it. Donald Trump was a friend to the media and they hated it. The old saying goes that journalism is the first draft of history. And i Don't think that it's unfair to say that those first drafts painted the candidates in very different ways. As we've talked a lot on this show, both Kennedy and Trump co-opted the media for their own agenda very effectively. The difference here is that they liked when Kennedy did it, and they actively tried to ignore... Trump doing it? I think largely it's because they didn't like Trump. Well, let me not go that far. They liked Donald Trump the person, or at least many of the New York-based media did. After all, early in the 2016 campaign, Trump's phone gets hacked, and you can hear plenty of media folks leaving complimentary messages to the Donald including a couple of fawning ones from MSNBC personalities who spend the majority of their day trashing Trump for their liberal viewers. But it's the campaign the media hates. They hate what it represents. They hate the dog whistles. And it's not just the MSNBCs of the world. It's everyone. Here's GOP pollster Frank Luntz, who took an anti-Trump stance during the campaign, describing the mood amongst the press. I talked to friends at ABC, NBC, and Fox News, some of them who love Clinton and some of them who didn't. I didn't talk to anyone who was pro-Trump in any of those organizations. I didn't know anyone at one network who was on the air as an analyst who voted for Trump. There were tears, and the most common comment I got on those calls were, what am I going to tell my daughter when she wakes up? How do I explain this to my children? People who wanted to talk to me wanted to talk because they were dumbfounded by what was happening. End quote. And yet, the gift. ...of the Trump campaign to the very outlets that despised him is undeniable. By 2016, stalwarts of cable ratings are in freefall. Victims of the cord-cutting movement that sees viewers getting their television over the internet in cheaper bundles. ESPN, TBS, Discovery, and Univision all see their numbers tank in 2016. And prior to the election, cable news is not spared from this trend. They watched their audience erode from the high point of Obama's first election in 2008. So by 2016, they are not expecting an election to save them. They've already watched one come and go. Until Trump, while the rest of cable continues to dissolve. CNN is up 76% year over year. MSNBC is up 87% in total viewers and 97% in the key advertising demo of 24 to 54. Yet despite the obvious surge in attention, it doesn't translate to any more accurate prognostication in the way that it did for Kennedy. Where Trump is dismissed as a ratings-grabbing oddity soon to correct itself, Kennedy's media sensationalism is viewed as destiny. During the pomp and circumstance of Kennedy's inauguration, star-studded and historic, and punctuated by the line, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country, we have one of the greatest examples of the media protecting JFK. For it was that night that Kennedy's voracious sexual appetite would not be denied. According to actress Angie Dickinson, sex with the newly minted president that day were the most memorable 15 seconds of her life. But it's this story recounted by Larry J. Sabato's Kennedy's half-century that tells a fuller story of how much the media carried water for the young president. After the official schedule of events wraps, Kennedy decides to stop by columnist Joseph Alsop's house. Alsop is hosting a group of ten or so friends. Jack walks in. It's a big surprise. The man of the hour is there late into the evening. He makes jokes, and then identifies a young girl, obviously starstruck, proceeds to find an empty room and has sex with her. And then he leaves. The young girl weeps, fearful that she'd never see him again. What's remarkable here is not the tawdry catting around of Kennedy but rather how comfortable he felt to do it where he does it. Kennedy feels no worry about screwing a friend of a popular columnist, and Alsop never reports a single detail about the affair he unwittingly brokers. And then, of course, there's the tragedy that follows. Once JFK is no longer just a president, but a martyr, all the kid gloves treatment becomes permanent. There's no reexamination, just the good times, the way we'd all like to be thought of when we're gone. Ladies and gentlemen, this house is honored to have a man whose parents were born in Italy who, from humble beginnings, went to the very top entertainment, Frank Sinatra. I've got the world on a street Sitting on a rainbow Bobby Kennedy is named Attorney General begins a crackdown on the mob, including Momo Giancana. Frank Sinatra becomes estranged from the Kennedy family during Bobby's mob crackdown. In 1973, he performs this rendition of I've Got the World on a String in the White House. His host, Richard Nixon, who introduces him, has already begun the cover-up of the Watergate burglary that would prematurely end his miracle presidency. Judith Exner's last meeting with John F. Kennedy is in 1962. She claims that she becomes pregnant after this visit. She terminates the pregnancy. Fleeing prosecution, Momo lives in Mexico before returning to Chicago. He dies from a bullet to the back of his head in his own kitchen. He's cooking sausage and peppers. John F. Kennedy is murdered in Dallas in 1963. He succeeded in the White House by his vice president. Lyndon Baines Johnson becomes president and wins re-election in 1964 against Barry Goldwater. Bobby Kennedy runs for president in 1968. He's murdered on the campaign trail. Joe Kennedy suffers a stroke in 1961, leaving him unable to speak. He dies in 1969, having outlived his three oldest boys. After losing in 1960, and again for California governor in 1962, Richard Nixon is elected President of the United States in 1968, Henry Cabot Lodge becomes Kennedy's ambassador to Vietnam and stays in the post through LBJ's tenure. Lodge is appointed by President Nixon to oversee the Treaty of Paris, ending the Vietnam War. He then takes a position with the Catholic Church officially working for the Pope in Washington, D.C. as a representative to the Holy See until 1977. After all the hand-wringing, there is indeed a member of the 1960 campaign literally taking orders from Rome, its lodge. Hey Hey now! This is our history. Thank you very much. And I'll have recaps on all the 2016 characters when we've got enough time for me to chronicle them appropriately. This is the very nature of life, let alone politics. It's to react to what's in front of you. But what if the truth, like Theodore White said about elections, is invisible? What if It's a mystery in which millions of people fit one fragment of a total secret together. It's what makes the internet age so absolutely fascinating. For the first time in history, we've got real-time access to the returns. My hope is that you enjoyed my attempt to piece together this one. Thank you. Good night. Raise the Dead is research written, recorded, and performed by me, Justin Robert Young. You can find a full list of our sources for this series at our website, RaiseTheDeadPodcast.com. That's also where you can find our audiobook compilation and ebook of transcripts, both of which include a bonus episode. I'd like to thank my senior strategist, Tamar Sandell, along with Tom Merritt, Brett Roundsville, and John Teasdale for their extraordinary patience in helping me put this together. I would also like to thank Brian Brushwood, Andrew Main, Scott Johnson, Brian Ibbett, Matt Mattingly, and Jacob from the Ice Cream Social podcast. Producer Nina Ernst, who uh, helped me uh, with a few things very, very early in the project in terms of organization. But as we wrap up, I do want to make a special dedication to The Daily Orange in Syracuse, New York for giving me the tools to research and bring this story to life and the clarity that it deserves and my social studies teachers at South Plantation High School in Plantation, Florida, circa the late 90s. Thank you for giving me a love for the truly human stories that make up our history. You can send me an email, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. You can reach me on Twitter and Instagram at Justin R. Young. And I want to thank radio in Oakland, California, for your fantastic research facilities. Until next time, this is your old pal Justin Robert Young saying goodbye. The Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this (laughs) program.